0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Miranda Law Firm podcast, Investing Beyond Borders. This is a bonus podcast expressly dedicated to the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Miranda's ESG Impact Plus team approached inspiring people from both sides of the fence in order to discuss the current events, the impact of ethics and ESG on the ongoing military conflict scenario, and the forthcoming future. Today, we will be sharing part one of an interesting conversation we had with Yuri Nechayev, a corporate and M&A lawyer and partner of Avalum, a leading Ukrainian full-service law firm based in Kiev. With the unfolding military aggression reducing the provision of legal services to a fraction of the pre-war level, Yuri joined the volunteer movement in Kiev from day one. Instead of assisting clients, his main activity is now to deliver food to elderly people and provide assistance to vulnerable citizens in Kiev. Our colleague, Flippa Monteiro, will be talking to our guest about the impressive resilience of Ukrainian people, the impact of Western sanctions imposed on Russia, the exodus of Western companies from the Russian market, the role of lawyers and law firms in preventing kleptocracy, and what future may bring for Ukraine. So stay with us if you want to find out more. Sit back, relax, and enjoy investing beyond borders. Flippa, over to you. Given the circumstances and the
1: dramatic events your country is currently facing, this may seem a shallow question, but how are you?
2: Hello to everybody. Indeed, my country, Ukraine, is going through the real tragedy, immeasurable human suffering and the unbelievable level of armed violence and destruction. Starting from 24th of February, 2022, the armed attack of Russia has already resulted in 3,000 776 civilian casualties in our country, out of whom 1,563 killed, including 167 children and 2,213 injured. By the time you will hear this podcast, these numbers will grow. This is on top of thousands of civilian victims of the Russian war against Ukraine in Donetsk and Luhansk region since 2014. I am now in Kyiv, I am safe and sound, relatively, of course. On the backdrop of the information on the planned attack that had been widely circulated in media in January and February, I decided that I would stay in Kiev if the war commences. I took a decision that it would be right for me to stay and to see what I can do to help my country and people here on the ground. On the second day of the large-scale invasion, I sent, I sent my 14-year-old with my parents to Bulgaria, where they stay safely now. We are indeed very grateful to all the countries and communities in Europe and elsewhere who host Ukrainians and help refugees. Three weeks ago, my wife came back to Kyiv from her humanitarian mission in South Sudan, and now we stay together. When it comes to my colleagues from Avelum, the law firm I work in, some stayed in Kiev, some moved to other, safer parts of the country and some left Ukraine. Work-wise, in Avellum, we definitely feel the significant decrease, but we still have some projects to handle and continue to deliver the best quality results in line with our values. During spare time, some people do some volunteering work, including myself. I found my niche in delivering cooked foods, foodstuff, medicines, and other required items to vulnerable people including elderly, people with disabilities, and other families in need.
1: Even though this war was building up for the past eight years, was it a surprise to see your country facing a full-scale and brutal invasion?
2: To answer this question, I would like to put the current situation into historical perspective. Throughout centuries, Russia has tried to absorb Ukraine and Ukrainian history, cultural and spiritual legacy. To do that, Russia resorted to destruction, killing and displacement of Ukrainians, prohibition of language and culture, denying Ukraine's right to existence. Repressions inflicted on Ukrainians culminated in Holodomor of 1932-33, a man-made famine universally recognized as a genocide of Ukrainian people. As you correctly stated in the question, Russia has been waging a war in Ukraine for the last eight years. From this standpoint, the aggressive intentions of the Russian regime and such a brutal move were not a surprise for me. But I also hoped that such an irrational decision would not have been taken. Why irrational? Two reasons, Ukrainian army and Ukrainian people. During the eight years of the war with Russia, Ukrainian army became much stronger, better organized and professional army with extremely high fighting spirit. For many years, Ukrainian people showed how important freedom is for them. To force a country with 40 million of such people to submission is quite a task. For these reasons, on the one hand, I hope that there will be no large scale invasion. On the other hand, I did not exclude this might happen. Obviously, as the last 43 days have shown, Russia's political regime had an absolutely faulty understanding of what Ukraine is and who Ukrainians are. For decades, Russia leadership was poisoning the minds of common Russians with propaganda. Ultimately, this played a bad joke with themselves. They started believing it in it themselves and started thinking that a takeover of Ukraine would be an easy task, a matter of days. By now, Putin and his narrow circle have probably started to understand how wrong they were to see Ukrainians and Russians as one people. They are indeed neighboring Slavic countries, but with absolutely different mindsets, different vision of the world, different values, and different confidence in their identity. Another important question is if we, all together, could have done anything to prevent this from happening. And my answer is yes, I think we could have. I guess the biggest mistake made was the continued policy of the appeasement of the aggressor. And failure to provide support to Ukraine in quantity and of quality that was commensurate to the threat and potential consequences, not only for Ukraine, but also for Europe and for the whole international community. Western countries were delaying taking the decisions on the weapon supply defense systems, which already costed thousands of Ukrainian lives. Sadly, anecdotal was an example of pre-war military support by, by Germany. Everything Ukraine was able to get was 5,000 helmets, which, by the way, even arrived after the war had commenced. I believe it all started in 2008 when the aggressive regime in Moscow did not receive the resolute reaction from the civilized world to Russia's invasion into Georgia. Later, weak response was given to the attack on Ukrainian Donbas and occupation of Ukrainian Crimea in 2014. See noticeable militarization in the regions of Russia and Belarus bordering Ukraine, escalation of violence in Donbas and lack of progress towards peaceful solutions, Ukraine persistently asked for preventive sanctions, for much more weapons. But this did not happen. All this emboldened the Russian leadership, and now we have what we have. Well, it is Russian political regime that we are to blame for this war. I think we all could have done better. And most probably, and most more and most importantly, Going forward, we should learn from these mistakes.
1: You are acting as a volunteer in Kyiv, and several of your co-workers and colleagues are fighting alongside the Ukrainian army or the Territorial Defense Force. How is the morale amongst the legal professionals in country?
2: In general, the morale of Ukrainians is high, and we remain strong and ready to do what we should. At first, as long as as we can, and on top of that, as long as it is needed. As I see it, most of the Ukrainians share this vision regardless of the profession or their current contribution to the end of the war. Everybody's contribution counts. From fighting on the battlefield and documenting war crimes committed against Ukrainians, to planting the crop and psychologically helping Ukrainian children, to survive the horrors of brutal and devastating war. Again, going beyond the legal profession, I have been so proud to see that Ukrainians facing these deadly threats every day, being stretched by all the difficulties and risks, they still continue to show a high level of self-discipline, self-organization, and mutual support of truly exceptional caliber. People have great confidence in armed forces, territorial defense, and law enforcement agencies, who are really seen as actors of protection and support. Common people comply with the introduced rules and treat the imposed restrictions. For example, curfews, verification procedures at the checkpoints, with understanding and cooperation. Out of this high morale, unity, and the understanding of how important is everyone's input in the the common good come out many volunteering and private initiatives that try to ensure that nobody is left behind, especially the most vulnerable and those in need. This is our national idea these days, freedom and human life as the highest values.
1: Several international bars, legal associations and law firms reacted quickly by expressing support, contributing to war and humanitarian efforts, cutting ties with Russian clients and closing offices in Russia. Was this a surprise or were you not expecting anything different? How has this wave of international private sector support been received in Ukraine?
2: Despite widespread Russian propaganda, for which, by the way, Russia has spent billions of euros. During the last several months, the world has been receiving information on the situation of Ukraine, and and people could shape their opinions on this war and the humanitarian crisis. Therefore, I did expect the universal condemnation of the Russian aggression itself, as well as the brutality of the Russian troops' conduct towards Ukrainians. For me, it was not surprising, but rather a natural reaction when legal businesses started to leave the Russian market, close their offices, and cut ties with clients from Russia. All Ukrainian lawyers highly appreciated this step. By doing so, my foreign colleagues demonstrated how to adhere to professional ethical standards and that they do not want to be a part of the war machine of Russia, killing and injuring civilians, including children, women and elderly in Ukraine. I was glad to see that such principled position of legal professionals generally coincides with the position of other civilized businesses.
1: Several lawyers and law firms are being accused of, over the years, enabling kleptocrats to carry out business in the West, launder ill-gotten gains, and ultimately, directly or indirectly, supporting autocratic and corrupt regimes. In your view, should the operations of these business actors be prevented by enacting stricter corporate and banking rules? Should law firms be required to strengthen internal business and compliance policies and KYC procedures?
2: To these questions my answer is absolutely yes. Law firms should be obliged to strengthen compliance standards. Likewise, stricter rules should apply to the operation of business actors when it comes to prevention of money laundering and support given to autocratic and corrupt regimes often lacking legitimacy at the first place. This understanding and the applicable rules should be underpinned by the effective accountability mechanism. In other words, it is critical to ensure that businesses getting profit from such doubtful operations inevitably incur losses and are disincentivized from even considering engaging in such activities.
1: Ukraine submitted a membership bid to the EU. Apart from the political significance of this move in wartime, do Ukrainian citizens massively support the possibility of Ukraine becoming an EU member state? If so, what do you think are the main drivers behind this support?
2: To answer this question, again, I need to briefly describe some historical background. Firstly, we must be clear that not only geographically, but also historically, culturally, socially and otherwise, for centuries Ukraine has been a part of Europe. Despite difficult times in history, when Ukraine was conquered and divided by empires, it kept its identity and values, which are now defined as European. As a result of a series of social political changes over the last two decades, some of you may have heard of the Orange Revolution of 2004 and the Revolution of Dignity of 2013-2014. Ukrainian people matured as a nation and reconfirmed its vision of its future and choice for the country. These are respectful human rights and freedom and democracy. The leap that Ukrainians made in their self-identification and marking their values during the last months probably greater than the progress made during the last eight years of the ongoing armed conflict in the east of Ukraine and occupation of Crimea. In turn, progress during these eight years was more significant than the transformations that were happening within the previous 22 years after the re-establishment of the statehood of Ukraine at the ruins of the Soviet Union. So yes, as of now and more than ever before, Ukrainians do support the possibility of Ukraine becoming a new member state. As such, the aspiration of the Ukrainian society to be a to be formally a part of the European family is dictated by the desire to reinf- reaffirm Ukrainian European identity and adherence to our core values. In addition, Ukrainians see joining the European common space as the access to opportunities for our further development and as a platform for unlocking our people's great potential. Here, we are seeking to contribute to common good rather than only consuming or benefiting. So, joining the EU is not a name in itself, it is just a move that facilitates removal of the existing system barriers for Ukrainian people and goods and services produced by Ukraine.
1: Adhering to the EU is subject to compliance with several strict requirements, and President Zelensky's appeals for a quick membership may not be a real possibility. In such a scenario, in your view, what could be the best way forward? Should the EU implement interim procedures enabling Ukraine to meet the required standards in a shorter period of time?
2: First, I would like to clarify that President Zelensky's appeal for a quick membership did not come out of the blue. Ukraine signed the Treaty of Association with the EU back in 2014, which was preceded by a long history of relationship and Ukrainian effort to accelerate much-needed reforms. For years, Ukraine has been a priority partner of the EU within the Eastern Partnership and the European neighboring policy. Since 1997, in the frames of the German summits, Ukraine and the EU have been confirming the European aspirations of our country and every year marked the progress made in various domains towards the expected outcomes. This Despite various external pressures and internal challenges, especially within the last eight years of Russian war against Ukraine, Ukrainian people were steadily following the way of reforms and building strong civil society and state institutions. The pathway of reform continues. To name but a few, the reform of judiciary, police, prosecution office, tax system, deregulation. As a corporate lawyer, I may confirm that the corporate legislation of Ukraine is state-of-the-art and very very investor-friendly. For example, you may register a limited liability company within just two hours. Our rules governing shareholders' agreements are modern and flexible. Noteworthy is extremely high level of electronic services available in the country for common citizens and businesses. These decrease the pressure of bureaucracy and associated risk of corruption. I'm sure only few EU countries are able to compete with Ukraine on the level of g- digitalization. Also particularly significant is the human rights record of Ukraine, the current level of freedom of speech, freedom of thought and religion, democratic elections, and the increased level of efficiency of state institutions and the level of transparency of some state agencies. Again, I'm not sure every EU country may match Ukraine on this. So, on the one hand, let's not underestimate the existing level of Ukraine's compliance with the EU membership criteria. On the other hand, a special fast-track procedure is very well substantiated by the unprecedented threat Faced by Ukraine and, more importantly, with what dignity Ukrainian people respond to such threat.
0: Thanks, Flippa, and thank you, Yuri, for sharing your thoughts with us in this episode of Investing Beyond Borders. We hope you enjoy this content and found something to reflect about wherever you are. Join us in two days' time for the second part of our conversation with Yuri Nechaev. Throughout the year, we will be bringing you more news and content related to the work carried out by our ESG Impact Plus team. Stay tuned to this podcast, to our website and LinkedIn page to hear more from us on these important issues. This podcast was brought to you by Miranda Law Firm. You can find out more about our worldwide activities and assistance to investors at www.mirandalawfirm.com. This episode was presented by Felipe Monteiro from our Lisbon office and Luis Miranda from the Houston office. Technical support is provided by Hugo Ribeiro from our Communications Department. All content is subject to copyright and protected by law.